0: This is Chapter 54 of Following the Equator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following the Equator by Mark Twain Chapter 54 By Rail to Calcutta Population The City of Palaces A Fluted Candlestick Octolony Newspaper Correspondence Average Knowledge of Countries A Wrong Idea of Chicago Calcutta and the Black Hole Description of the Horrors those who lived the botanical gardens, the afternoon turnout, grand review, military tournament, excursion on the Hoogly, the museum, What winter means in Calcutta, do not undervalue the headache while it is at its sharpest. It seems a bad investment, but when relief begins, the unexpired remainder is worth four dollars a minute. Puddnhead Wilson's new calendar. A comfortable railway journey of seventeen and a half hours brought us to the capital of India, which is likewise the capital of Bengal—Calcutta. Like Bombay, it has a population of nearly a million natives, and a small gathering of white people. It is a huge city, and fine, and is called the City of Palaces. It is rich in historical memories, rich in British achievement—military, political, commercial— rich in the results of the miracles done by that brace of mighty magicians clive and hastings and has a cloud-kissing monument to one it is a fluted candlestick two hundred and fifty feet high this lingam is the only large monument in calcutta i believe it is a fine ornament and will keep octorlani in mind wherever you are in calcutta and for miles around you can see it and always, when you see it, you think of Ochterlony, And so there is not an hour in the day that you do not think of Ochterlony and wonder who he was. It is good that Clive cannot come back, for he would think it was for Plassey, and then that great spirit would be wounded when the revelation came that it was not. Clive would find out that it was for Ochterlony, and he would think Ochterlony was a battle— and he would think it was a great one too and he would say with three thousand i whipped sixty thousand and founded the empire and there is no monument this other soldier must have whipped a billion with a dozen and saved the world but he would be mistaken Ochterlony was a man not a battle and he did good and honorable service too as good and honorable service as has been done in india by seventy-five or a hundred other englishmen of courage rectitude and distinguished capacity for india has been a fertile breeding ground of such men and remains so great men both in war and in the civil service and as modest as great but they have no monuments and were not expecting any Ochterlony could not have been expecting one and it is not at all likely that he desired one certainly not until clive and hastings should be supplied every day clive and hastings lean on the battlements of heaven and look down and wonder which of the two the monument is for and they fret and worry because they cannot find out and so the peace of heaven is spoiled for them and lost but not for octorlani octorlani is not troubled he doesn't suspect that it is his monument heaven is sweet and peaceful to him there is a sort of unfairness about it all indeed if monuments were always given in india for high achievements duty straightly performed and smirchless records the landscape would be monotonous with them the handful of english in india govern the indian myriads with apparent ease and without noticeable friction through tact training and distinguished administrative ability reinforced by just and liberal laws and by keeping their word to the native whenever they give it england is far from india and knows little about the eminent services performed by her servants there for it is the newspaper correspondent who makes fame and he is not sent to india but to the continent to report the doings of the princelets and the dukelets and where they are visiting and whom they are marrying Often a British official spends thirty or forty years in India, climbing from grade to grade by services which would make him celebrated anywhere else, and finishes as a vice-sovereign, governing a great realm and millions of subjects. Then he goes home to England, substantially unknown and unheard of, and settles down in some modest corner, and is as one extinguished. Ten years later there is a twenty-line obituary in the London papers, and the reader is paralyzed by the splendors of a career which he is not sure that he had ever heard of before. But, meanwhile, he has learned all about the Continental princelets and dukelets. The average man is profoundly ignorant of countries that lie remote from his own— when they are mentioned in his presence one or two facts, and maybe a couple of names rise like torches in his mind, lighting up an inch or two of it, and leaving the rest all dark. The mention of Egypt suggests some biblical facts, and the pyramids nothing more. The mention of South Africa suggests Kimberley, and the diamonds, and there an end. Formerly the mention to a Hindu of America suggested a name, George Washington, With that, his familiarity with our country was exhausted. Latterly, his familiarity with it has doubled in bulk, so that when America is mentioned now, two torches flare up in the dark caverns of his mind, and he says, "'Ah, the country of the great man Washington, and of the holy city Chicago,' for he knows about the Congress of Religion, and this has enabled him to get an erroneous impression of Chicago." when india is mentioned to the citizen of a far country it suggests clive hastings the mutiny kipling and a number of other great events and the mention of calcutta infallibly brings up the black hole and so when that citizen finds himself in the capital of india he goes first of all to see the black hole of calcutta and is disappointed the black hole was not preserved it is gone long long ago it is strange just as it stood it was itself a monument a ready-made one it was finished it was complete its materials were strong and lasting it needed no furbishing up no repairs it merely needed to be let alone it was the first brick the foundation stone upon which was reared a mighty empire the indian empire of great britain it was the ghastly episode of the black hole that maddened the british and brought clive that young military marvel raging up from madras it was the seed from which sprung Plassy, and it was that extraordinary battle whose like had not been seen in the earth since agincourt that laid deep and strong the foundations of england's colossal indian sovereignty and yet within the time of men who still live the black hole was torn down and thrown away as carelessly as if Its bricks were common clay, not ingots of historic gold. There is no accounting for human beings. The supposed site of the black hole is marked by an engraved plate. I saw that, and better that than nothing. The black hole was a prison, a cell is near the right word, eighteen feet square, the dimensions of an ordinary bedchamber and into this place the victorious Nabob of Bengal packed one hundred and forty-six of his English prisoners. There was hardly standing-room for them, scarcely a breath of air was to be got. The time was night, the weather sweltering hot. Before the dawn came the captives were all dead but twenty-three. Mr. Holwell's long account of the awful episode was familiar to the world a hundred years ago, but one seldom sees in print even an extract from it in our day. Among the striking things in it is this. Mr. Holwell, perishing with thirst, kept himself alive by sucking the perspiration from his sleeves. It gives one a vivid idea of the situation. He presently found that while he was busy drawing life from one of his sleeves, a young English gentleman was stealing supplies from the other one. Holwell was an unselfish man, a man of the most generous impulses. He lived and died famous for these fine and rare qualities. Yet, when he found out what was happening to that unwatched sleeve, he took the precaution to suck that one dry first. The miseries of the black hole were able to change even a nature like his. But that young gentleman was one of the twenty-three survivors, and he said it was the stolen perspiration that saved his life. From the middle of Mr. Holwell's narrative, I will make a brief excerpt. Then, a general prayer to heaven, to hasten the approach of the flames to the right and left of us, and put a period to our misery. But these failing, they whose strength and spirits were quite exhausted, laid themselves down and expired quietly upon their fellows. Others who had yet some strength and vigor left made a last effort at the windows, and several succeeded by leaping and scrambling over the backs and heads of those in the first rank and got hold of the bars, from which there was no removing them. Many to the right and left sunk with the violent pressure, and were soon suffocated. For now a steam arose from the living and the dead, which affected us in all its circumstances, as if we were forcibly held with our heads over a bowl full of strong, volatile spirit of Hartshorn, until suffocated nor could the effluvia of the one be distinguished from the other, and frequently, when I was forced by the load upon my head and shoulders to hold my face down, I was obliged, near as I was to the window, instantly to raise it again to avoid suffocation. I need not, my dear friend, ask your commiseration when I tell you that in this plight, from half an hour past eleven till near two in the morning, I sustained the weight of a heavy man with his knees in my back and the pressure of his whole body on my head, a Dutch surgeon who had taken his seat upon my left shoulder, and a topaz, a black Christian soldier, bearing on my right, all which nothing could have enabled me to support but the props and pressure equally sustaining me all around. The two latter I frequently dislodged by shifting my hold on the bars and driving my knuckles into their ribs, but my friend above stuck fast, held immovable by two bars. I exerted anew my strength and fortitude, but the repeated trials and efforts I made to dislodge the insufferable encumbrances upon me at last quite exhausted me, and towards two o'clock, finding I must quit the window or sink where I was, I resolved on the former, having bore, truly for the sake of others, infinitely more for life than the best of it is worth in the rank close behind me was an officer of one of the ships whose name was carry and who had behaved with much bravery during the siege his wife a fine woman though country-born would not quit him but accompanied him into the prison and was one who survived this poor wretch had been long raving for water and air i told him i was determined to give up life and recommended his gaining my station on my quitting it he made a fruitless attempt to get my place but the Dutch surgeon, who sat on my shoulder, supplanted him. Poor Carey expressed his thankfulness and said he would give up life, too. But it was with the utmost labor we forced our way from the window, several in the inner ranks appearing to me dead standing, unable to fall by the throng and equal pressure around. He laid himself down to die, and his death, I believe, was very sudden. For he was a short, full, sanguine man, his strength was great, and i imagine had he not retired with me i should never have been able to force my way i was at this time sensible of no pain and little uneasiness i can give you no better idea of my situation than by repeating my simile of the bowl of spirit of hartshorn i found a stupor coming on apace and laid myself down by that gallant old man the rev mr jervis bellamy who laid dead with his son the lieutenant hand in hand near the southernmost wall of the prison when i had lain there some little time i still had reflection enough to suffer some uneasiness in the thought that i should be trampled upon when dead as i myself had done to others with some difficulty i raised myself and gained the platform a second time where i presently lost all sensation the last trace of sensibility that i have been able to recollect after my laying down was my sash being uneasy about my waist which i untied and threw from me of what passed in this interval to the time of my resurrection from this hole of horrors i can give you no account there was plenty to see in calcutta but there was not plenty of time for it i saw the fort that clive built and the place where warren hastings and the author of the junius letters fought their duel and the great botanical gardens, and the fashionable afternoon turnouts in the Maidan, and a grand review of the garrison in a great plain at sunrise, and a military tournament in which great bodies of native soldiery exhibited the perfection of their drill at all arms, a spectacular and beautiful show occupying several nights, and closing with the mimic storming of a native fort which was as good as the reality for thrilling and accurate detail and better than the reality for security and comfort we had a pleasure excursion on the hooghly by courtesy of friends and devoted the rest of the time to social life and the indian museum one should spend a month in the museum an enchanted palace of indian antiquities indeed a person might spend half a year among the beautiful and wonderful things without exhausting their interest it was winter we were of kipling's Hosts of tourists who travel up and down India in the cold weather showing how things ought to be managed. It is a common expression there, the cold weather, and the people think there is such a thing. It is because they have lived there half a lifetime, and their perceptions have become blunted. When a person is accustomed to a hundred and thirty-eight in the shade, his ideas about cold weather are not valuable. I had read, in the histories, that the June marches made between Lucknow and Cawnpore by the British forces in the time of the mutiny were made in that kind of weather, 138 in the shade, and had taken it for historical embroidery. I had read it again in Sergeant Major Forbes Mitchell's account of his military experiences in the mutiny—at least I thought I had—and in Calcutta I asked him if it was true, and he said it was an officer of high rank who had been in the thick of the mutiny said the same as long as those men were talking about what they knew they were trustworthy and i believed them but when they said it was now cold weather i saw that they had traveled outside of their sphere of knowledge and were floundering i believe that in india cold weather is merely a conventional phrase and has come into use through the necessity of having some way to distinguish between weather which will melt a brass doorknob, and weather which will only make it mushy. It was observable that brass ones were in use while I was in Calcutta, showing that it was not yet time to change to porcelain. I was told the change to porcelain was not usually made until May, but this cold weather was too warm for us, so we started to Darjeeling. In the Himalayas, a twenty four hour journey. End of chapter fifty four.